Welcome to Sunday School. This is, uh, we are doing part two of uh, understanding apologetical method. My, okay. <laughs> Does it need to be closer? I'm sorry. I'll lean in. All right. So, uh, part two of, of method. I mean, apologetics, as we have learned, uh, is a method, but we're going over the different kinds of methods. We're going to be critiquing some of the ones that uh, might have problems, and then we're going to talk today, I hope, we'll have time to go into the one we think might have promise. So from problems to promise. As long as it's alliterated, you'll believe what I say. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will uh, get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you asking for your help today. We ask for your help uh, for us to understand, uh, help that we might be able to humble ourselves before your word, uh, that we might, um, maybe we might have to change the way we think about things. Um, we pray for your help that we do this well and according to your word and not according to man's word. And we pray that uh, we all might, through this, not be, uh, necessarily just come closer to understanding, but come closer to you through this. And Lord, we ask your help in these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Apologetical method. This is good stuff. Remember uh, the very first time we met, we talked about a worldview. We talked about how that is how we interpret the world around us. We have different ways to do that. We use a criteria. God being a covenant-keeping God and a God that has condescended to us through covenant has created our minds to think in a covenantal structure. And that covenantal structure means that we think in hierarchy. We have an authority in our mind that we use to interpret the world. And whatever that authority is will tell you what kind of method you will end up using in your apologetics. Does that make sense? So whatever authority, whatever you think, tells me what reality is, that will end up dictating what method appeals to you most. In other words, um, and this is something that has happened in some schools, uh, apologetics class is kind of a list of different methods, and then they say, now you, we'll, we'll take all the strengths of the different methods and uh, just kind of enjoy those strengths and just kind of, I don't know, be the Bruce Lee of, uh, of apologetics and just borrow from a bunch of different methods and create our own one big solid method that's all good and biblical, uh, borrowing from all the other methods. Uh, that just doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Our, our mind isn't made that way. What ends up happening is you defend one method by taking, showing how those other methods kind of have points that point to the method you actually like. Does that make sense? 
that's what happens because it, it's impossible to say that I'm just gonna Bruce Lee these, these methods. Do you understand what I'm talking about when I say Bruce Lee? I know some of you are very young. Uh, so just after Paul died, there was this guy named Bruce Lee, not that old. But uh, Bruce Lee, uh, he was this great martial artist and he took all the, the martial arts and combined them into one cool thing and then you know, he was the coolest guy and you know, he took a kung fu and all right, you know what I'm talking about. So we're not, we can't do that with apologetics, unfortunately. How cool that would be, uh, but we can't. Uh, because our minds are structured in an authoritative manner so that what we end up doing is just defending one view. So the question is, what is your one view? And that uh, is what we want to get to today. We want to review a little bit. Maybe uh, for those of you that maybe lost your little piece of paper and you grabbed a new one, we'll go back over some of this stuff to, uh, just to keep it fresh in our mind. Uh, so with the first method, we talked about the classical apologetics, classical apologetics method. And uh, we kind of mentioned that, um, what was his name? William Lane Craig uh, is a big fan of this. Uh, and there's different degrees of this, uh, just so you understand. Um, William Lane Craig is probably more of an extreme degree of, of how this works. There's people with lesser um, that isn't so extreme as him. But the, the basic idea is to look around the world and say, well, the world seems to be designed, it seems to be caused, it seems to have a moral structure to it that's kind of built into humans. And if you look at that, what you have to come, uh, you have to, come to grips with is that there is a God. We can't get around that. So there must be a God. And then the next step is then to show them that the Bible is really reliable, that you can trust it. And so, therefore, the Bible turns out, now that I've gotten you to trust it, talks about who this God is. It's ours. We win. Does that make sense? I don't mean to be sarcastic with it, but that's, that's basically the idea. Okay? And so you kind of show there is a God, and then our Bible says it's our God. And that's the two-step process. That's a... It's, I'm oversimplifying it, of course, but if I got into the nitty-gritty of it, it would take us a couple of years to get through that. Not because it's so complex, but because I'm not good at explaining things. Okay. Um, evidentialism was the next one. Everyone remember that one? Uh, basically, it's going through history to demonstrate not only that there was a Jesus, but this Jesus actually did die and raise again, and there's good... There's good uh, evidence to demonstrate this. And we talked about Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Christ, and talked about his step-by-step uh, -step process that kind of showed all the evidence that there really was a Jesus and that he did die and raise, rise again. It was important, obviously, in evidentialism to demonstrate that history shows that he rose again because that's the big issue, Right. Um, I think there's a lot of people, including Muslims, that are willing to say that Jesus was a moral man and a good prophet that uh, said some really wonderful things and then died. Uh, it's the raising again that demonstrates his, um, the idea that he is God on earth. And so um, that's where evidentialism wants to concentrate, which is a good, it's, it's good that that's what they want. <clears throat> 
how they come about it might be an issue. Um, we got that far, right? Okay. That's not very far. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, cumulative case method. This is kind of like a, uh, evidentialism, but what it does is it accumulates a bunch of different arguments and different evidences from different arguments and accumulates them into one big case. Uh, so this would be what a lawyer would do. A lawyer isn't gonna just take one aspect of the case and try and develop it like evidential, evidentialists would and just concentrate on Jesus. He's gonna say, well, there's evidence that the Bible is true. There's evidence that Jesus rose from the, from the grave. There's evidence that there really is a God and that there's evidence that it must be our specific God, can't be is Islam. And so they, they develop all these evidences. Uh, one one uh, famous guy, I don't know if he's famous, uh, he wrote enough books to be famous, I guess. Uh, Richard Swinburne is the big cumulative case guy uh, for this one. And uh, in his book, uh, where he, it's kind of his, He's written a lot of books, but the major book that he that kind of put his case forward, uh, we had to go through that in when I was going through my philosophy work, and um, and what we found was that at the end of the book, he actually brings it to percentages that we can be, and I, <laughs> I kid you not, we can be sixty percent sure that the God of the Bible is real and the, the right God and is true, 60%. Now, you might think that that is kind of silly, but what he did was he did a lot of work to try and demonstrate numerically that we're not just 51% sure. Because he kind of made the case that if we were 51% sure, that would be a great accomplishment, okay? Uh, because you have gone over the threshold of not sure, okay? But he got to 60%. And so he kind of celebrates himself at the end of the book that he was able to accomplish that. Now, I will tell you, um, and, I, and I do make fun of it a little bit, but the, the complexities that he goes through to get there is quite impressive. Uh, the sophistication of his epistemology, or what we call how we come to know that we know, um, is, is impressive. Um, but I don't think God is impressed that we're 60% sure he's around. Does that make sense? I don't think we've done God any favors. Um, so that, the little blank there... Uh, uses a broad variety of various kinds of evidences or, or evidence to establish Christianity as the best explanation. Okay, that's the word there. It's the best explanation of our world as we understand it. Okay. So he kind of looks around the world just like the other ones and says, look at all this. There's no way to explain it unless there was a God, and specifically the God of the Bible, to have... Uh, an explanation for why things are the way they are. And we can be 60% sure. Okay.
The other one is Reformed epistemology. Now, don't be fooled by that. That's not, the word Reformed is there, so you would think, hey, that must be ours. <laughs> it's, well, I mean, it, it might be yours. It's not mine. Um, it's called Reformed epistemology because the guy that developed it was Reformed. Uh, CRC, for those of you who don't know, that they're pretty liberal. Um, but the R does stand for Reformed, so. It's a Christian Reformed church. Anybody? Anybody? All right, good. <laughs> no, it's different. The CRC has been around for a while. Um, there was a time where they were, they were quite conservative. Uh, those days are over. <laughs> uh, but um, Alvin Plantinga? Alvin Plantinga? Anyone? All right. So he was, he's the big name in apologetics that brought about this view. Um, he's part of the CRC. Um, and some people have appreciated him because what he has done is he said, well, let's not worry about whether Christianity is true or not. Let's just ask if there is warrant. That's what your blank there is. All we need is warrant to believe. In other words, is it sufficiently rational to believe in Christianity? And if it's sufficiently rational, then, and this was his main goal, then the university should allow Christianity uh, to be respected and uh, talked about nicely. <laughs> well, that didn't work so well. But, um, but the idea is, is it sufficiently rational? Do we have warrant to believe? And that was his goal. Um, and I, I think some people appreciated it because it, for about five to ten years, people were enamored by this. And in the universities, uh, there was some pressure that was, that was let off of Christians that wanted to pursue philosophy. Um, I personally don't find it too helpful because all you're doing is you're saying, hey, we're rational people too. Um, let's not worry about whether it's true or not. Um, the whole point of our Christian faith is the true part. I could really care less whether human epistemology has reached the level at which it thinks it understands it. Does that make sense? In other words, whether or not humans have been able to attain the logical stability to be able to understand it enough to accept it into the university world, I don't think I care. I think what I care is whether it's true or not. We have done no one any favors by saying this is rational. I think you can make a case that Islam is rational, I think. Um, Tom Cruise seems to think that Scientology is rational. And he's doing pretty well. So is that the new standard? It has to be rational and then it's okay? I mean, I don't think that matters. I really don't. Particularly what we're going to talk about today, which is the problem with each of these. Um, Incidentally, on your form, is Reformed Epistemology bolded? Ah, I'm sorry. 
Can you uh, color it in? <laughs> Make it bold. It's supposed to be bold. That was my mistake. It doesn't happen often, but every once in a while there's a mistake made. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> so what is the issue with these different views? Um, as we talked about last time, one of the particular issues that I find that is the problem, the main pro underlining problem, is that there tends to be a need for something that is created to affirm our faith. Um, since the uh, Christianity has always been a little behind uh, when it comes to to thought, uh, the, the thought world, if I can put it that way. Uh, so the Enlightenment has come and gone. Uh, if, you, if you remember from history class, the Enlightenment was that time where people said, we are going to, you know, Francis Bacon comes around and says, we're going to start, uh, we're going to start taking notes on things and experiment and then, and then record these, these experiments and be very careful with our recordings, right? That was one of the big things that he was known for as part of our making sure we are precise and clear about our observations and precise and clear about our experimentation and precise and clear about our predictions. And there became this rule that science and reason is the standard of truth. The Enlightenment kind of brought that idea to people's minds. Because what was before the Enlightenment? Well, it was all this religious stuff, right? Uh, people were talking in Latin in, in church. It's where we get this, uh, the idea that everyone was kind of fed up with all of that religious stuff. It was hocus-pocus to them. Right? Remember in a few, Sunday, a few, well, maybe a year or so ago, I, we were doing a, a, a Sunday school where I was talking about where hocus-pocus came from. It comes from the Mass, where when the, when the priest raises the bread, he, sa he says, hocus corpus meum, which is, this is my body. And people didn't, you know, no one's going to memorize all that. It's just, you know, hocus Pocus, hocus pocus, this is ridiculous. They, they just thought it was ridiculous. So they, they, they hung on to a little few words, and they just thought it was silly. And so now we're getting into something that people were beginning to trust. I can trust my observations, what I see, not all this hocus pocus over here with the church. I can see it. I can record it. I can predict and a lot of my predictions are coming true based on the experiments that I am doing. And there was a lot of trust put into science and reasoning. And science and reasoning became the standard of truth. Well, later on, uh, as time went on, uh, some philosophers came by and really messed some things up. Right? Uh, guys like uh, existentialists. They really messed everything up for the Enlightenment because they really asked some questions that were difficult. Guys like Friedrich Nietzsche and guys like that who are an enemy to Christianity but were also an enemy to the Enlightenment 
Because what he was saying was, how is it that we can be truly objective? I mean, the standard by which we are, we are basing our very observations are on the things that we're assuming are already true that we can't prove is true, which are all the assumptions we take to make sense of our observations. And Nietzsche said, said something like, I don't have the exact quote because I didn't memorize it, but something like, being objective is like being an eye that floats around in space. It just has to float because once you have intention to look at something, that means you have assumed something to know that there should be intention at looking at this. And once you look at something, to even understand it, you have to interpret it. And that interpretation is based on things you're assuming are true, which then becomes without any kind of ob uh, objectivity at all. So he said, objectivity is like imagining an eye that can't do anything an eye is meant to do. It just has to float. It can't see anything. It can't interpret anything. And he says, it's ridiculous. Well, then that, came, that brought about what, we, what you may have heard of post-modernism. Have you heard of that phrase, post-modernism? Uh, post-modernism is the defeat of the Enlightenment. And I'm not even talking about Christianity, of course. This is just how the philosophical world has gone. Because they understood that observation requires pre-existing belief, and interpretation requires pre-existing belief. We have no way to know whether our science is reliable or not because science is based on pre-existing beliefs. In fact, it's even worse than that. There's two kinds of reasoning. Are you aware of the two kinds of reasoning? There's deductive and inductive. Deductive is kind of going from a general idea to specific application. Um, uh, in deductive reasoning, the premises guarantee the truth, if they're true, guarantee the truth of the conclusion. In inductive reasoning, you're going from very specific ideas and making general claims about them, right? Um, and so in that case, in inductive reasoning, the premises cannot guarantee the truth of the conclusion. It's just not designed that way. Now, what is science based on, deductive or inductive? Inductive. And this is something a guy named Karl Popper brought out, who has no relationship to Christianity at all, uh, wrote a book called The Logic of Science, and he said, this is the problem that we scientists don't talk about that our entire method is based on a type of reasoning that is not designed to tell anyone what's true or false about the world, just what is probable based on what you're assuming is true. That book changed a lot when it changed a lot of the scientific community. Scientific community then became uh, quite aware of what its work is meant to do that it's not meant to tell what's true or false about the world. It's meant to predict and to have an idea of what might be true, what is probable, based on all the assumptions they had to make in order to make the observations and the experiments make sense. 
if you don't hold to the, to the pre, uh, presupposing that goes on in those steps, then you may not agree with the conclusion. This is why very intelligent people can look at the Grand Canyon and say, oh, it's, a, it's the result of a flood. And very intelligent people can look at the Grand Canyon and say, this is, over, this is a result of millions and millions of years of water decay. Why do you have really intelligent people saying very different things about the same observation? Well, because their, their presuppositions are very, very, very different. And it's still science. Because what we find, um, and what was a big disappointment to a lot of my students when I taught logic, was that logic is not designed to tell you what's true or false about the world. Logic is designed to tell you what's consistent about what you're assuming is true. In logic class, truth or falsity is what we call a given. So when we get into, when we get into formal logic, uh, like a modus ponens, <laughs> where we're trying to test or prove a, a formula, Every, even the, our proofs have to be given uh, true. So given that A is true and given that B is false, then you solve, I mean, it's almost like math. It, it, thank you. It is math, isn't it? We won't, yeah, we won't go into all that. I mean, I won't, so yes, but that's right. So here we are with created things. Um, science tells us things about our observations. And we make sense of our observations through these beliefs that we have. We make sense of our experimentation and our predictions through our beliefs that we have. And we use logic and reasoning as a way to make sure we're consistent, but consistency doesn't mean it's true, uh, it just means it's consistent. We expect truth to be consistent, right? But that does not mean that everything that is consistent is true. <laughs> uh, you can make an argument if all the knowledge you have is that cheese has craters in it. And all the knowledge you have is that the moon has craters in it. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? And that cheese reflects light and the moon reflects light. If that's all the knowledge you have, you can make a logical argument that the moon is made of cheese. Now, the only reason that that's ridiculous is because there's a lot of propositions that were not allowed in to that little, to that little formula, right? Once we allow other things in, other propositions in, then that formula sounds ridiculous. So what have we learned about logic? Well, not only is it limited to what you assume, but it's limited to what you know right? Where we can make things that sound very, very logical only because we have no knowledge to add to it to realize that what we're saying is insane. Does that make sense? Now, a lot of my students thought I was a nihilist when I talked this way. <laughs> but it's because of this. We talked last week about Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is kind of the linchpin for all apologetics. Um, no matter who you follow, everyone goes back to this. Uh, we talked about how all people know God. 
We know they know God because Scripture says they know God. If we look at Romans 1.19, it says, That which is known about God is evident within them, within people. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that what, ha, uh, through that what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Okay. So if it's, if it's that easy, what's the problem? What did I say the problem was? Yes, verse 18, right? We skipped on purpose, of course, for dramatic effect. And so we look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is our problem. We suppress the truth. We suppress it. We suppress. We suppress. We don't suppress through ignorance. We don't suppress the truth because we don't know. We suppress the truth actively in sin. And if that's the case, then what does this look like? What is our tendency? How does this suppression uh, work in a practical way? Well, if we keep reading, what we find uh, is that it, it suppresses it uh, in 21 forward. For even though they knew God, okay, we know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This is the key idea. They didn't honor or give thanks to God. This is what suppression looks like. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, I hope this sounds familiar, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Talks about how God, uh, in 24, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to the impurity, so, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They, uh, for they exchanged the truth of God. Now, this is very important. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This habit, this sinful habit that we carry on even after we are saved, the old man still lives in us that we are trying to mortify. For those of you that are reading for Triple B, this mortification of sin is that mortifying the temptation to worship the creature instead of the creator. Pornography is an act of worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And I would even say that some of our temptation to find our hope in the truth of Scripture in the, creator, in the creation instead of the creator is still part of our temptation. Where do you get the faith that our scriptures are true? 
Yes. Now, so what does it mean when we see something in science that is inevitably true because our God is God? Let me give you, a, let me give you an example. Um, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, it talks about, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. That without form and void is that idea of chaos. Now, what's interesting is that uh, Einstein, I mean, we're talking about the 20th century. Einstein comes along and redefines what gravity is through general and specific relativity. Now, the word relativity sounds like uh, it's not very stable, that everything's relative, right? So if you're on a truck, a truck bed, a really long truck bed, and uh, Zeke is on that truck bed and he has a baseball in his hand, and uh, he's going to throw it to the catcher, and that truck is going 60 miles an hour, and uh, Zeke threw the ball, let's say, 60 miles an hour. So on the truck... Zeke is throwing a ball 60 miles an hour. How fast is that ball going to Zeke? 60 miles an hour? That's right, over here. Yeah, 60 miles an hour, that's correct. It's not a trick question. What if I'm standing uh, on, you know, on the ground and I see the truck go by, Zeke throws the ball, the ball goes 60 miles an hour, then the truck is going 60 miles an hour, how fast is the ball going to me? 120 miles an hour, right? Okay, this is the idea. Everything is relative because we sit on a globe that is spinning. Not just spinning, but also uh, going around in a big circle, oval. And uh, so anyway, everything is moving, which means everything is relative except what? According to Einstein, what was the one constant by which all things could be measured is the speed of light. That was the constant that made everything that looked like it was in chaos actually quite ordered because everything relates to that. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. It seemed to be in chaos. And what's the first thing God says? God said, let there be light. Okay. Now, for some of us, we might think, that's pretty cool. Because we see this correlation, something that wasn't even, even thought about until the 20th century, that light is actually a stabilizing force in the universe, and otherwise there wouldn't be this stabilizing force. And God said, let there be light, right after he created all this stuff, and it's like, hey, that matches, Right? Now the question is, does that help you believe the Bible, or does that help you glorify God? And there's a difference. Let me explain the difference. Let's say uh, Sarah knows that uh, Andrew loves the Lord. She knows this to the very fabric of her heart. She knows that Andrew loves the Lord. She has seen it in his life. She has lived with him all this time. She knows this. And one day, Andrew gives a sermon. 
And, so, and a visitor goes up to Sarah and says, you know, Sarah, I was listening to your husband's message today, and I can just, I really sensed his love for the Lord. Now, what does Sarah think at that moment? Sarah think, oh, I'm so glad you said that. I was really doubting that. <laughs> I just... You know, I've been, I've been struggling over that, and uh, it turns out he does love the Lord because what you said, and so that makes me feel better about it. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about something that that's, found, that's that foundational. Why would that be an encouragement to Sarah? Sarah already knows that. I mean, what does Sarah say to her? Like, I know. And? <laughs> I mean, I don't think you would say that. <laughs> Unless you're having a really bad day. <laughs> so, why would that be an encouragement to you, Sarah? I know, oh, that's, that kind of puts you, at, uh, puts you on the spot, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, isn't it an encouragement when the outside world finally recognizes something you already know to be true, especially about someone you love, right? There are things that I know about my son that I know is there. And when he gets a certain grade from a, from a teacher or a certain encouragement from a teacher that recognizes that, I'm encouraged. Not because I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I was really doubting that you know, he had interest there. No, it's that someone out there is recognizing it. That's exciting to me. It's encouraging to me. Not encouraging in that I was doubting it, and since they said it, I now can whoo, hold on to that. And if that person starts doubting it, then I'm going to start doubting it. Right? But rather it's encouragement because someone out there is recognizing something that I already know is true about someone I love. So when science starts showing a relationship to our scriptures, that isn't a way for us to go, oh, thank goodness that's there because if it wasn't there, I was really doubting scripture. It's exciting and, com- and comforting to us because something, someone out there and something out there is recognizing what we already know to be true, the truth of God's word. And that's exciting to us because it's, it's not that we're in love with the Bible, we're, we love our God who breathed out scripture as a mercy and grace to us. And so... That leaves us wondering um, about these other methods. Okay, do we? Uh, we talked about the classical uh, apologetics method, and we said, "Is the problem of the sinner, of the unbeliever?" If I can put it that way. Is the problem of the unbeliever that they don't know who God is and we are informing them and convincing them there is a God and then we got to steer it towards our God? Is that their problem, that they just don't know who God is? What, is, what does Romans 1 say? They know. Not just that there is a God, but they know the God. That's what Scripture says down to his attributes to ensure 
that we know we're talking about our God. His eternal attributes are known. That's what makes them without excuse. You understand that if we lose that doctrine, if we, if we start doubting that doctrine, then people are going to hell today unjustly. Because they didn't know. Is our God unjust? It says that they are without excuse, not because they know of a God, but because they know the God. If that's our assumption starting out, then we know their problem isn't that they're unfamiliar with this God. They know and they're suppressing it. That's why they're heading to hell. With evidentialism, we are, and with a cumulative case method, the method is to convince someone that something is true outside of the thing that is sent by God, God's word. How does God work? He works through the preaching of the word. Through his word, he works through the Holy Spirit, right? We are not trying to take that which is created to convince everyone of that which is eternal. It is as if, in doing that, uh, not only is, I mean, there's a lot of problems with it, but one of the problems is that you are taking tiny sticks and trying to go to war with tiny sticks while you have a nuclear weapon right there the whole time. Scripture is a nuclear weapon. Does it mean that, this, uh, that they are going to immediately respond to it the way we want them to? Does it mean that you are going to look super intelligent when you say, you know, God's word says? No. You're going to look like a fool. And how tempting is it to look smart? I'll tell you what. It's so tempting. But you're not trying to appeal to what they don't know. You're trying to appeal to what they do know. And they do know your God. And you're trying to help them see it. There is a method that does this. The Reformed epistemology method merely wants to show that it's rational. And, I, and, I, and my argument is, even if you do that, you've accomplished zero. There's a lot of occults out there that could be rational. What we want people to believe is that it, what we're saying is true. So how then, now that we've kind of stepped away from those other views, how do we get to a view that assumes that the unbeliever and the believer know already? They know God. There's a way to do it. It has typically been called presuppositionalism. We want to call it covenant apologetics. And if you tune in next week, we will go step by step through that method. And I promise that we will get that far. <laughs> Because I don't want to rush through it with my last minute.
But it's important that you see why we uh, want to go this direction, a covenantal way. Covenant assumes that there's already a connection. Either someone is already in violation of that covenant or someone is, is already in, in relation with that covenant, and that's where we begin. In other words, God is saying, everyone is already in relation to me. We start there. Well, what does an apologetic look like if we start there? What we'll find is an apologetic that relies on Scripture and the Holy Spirit when we speak to unbelievers. And it relies on Scripture and the Holy Spirit when we speak to ourselves and other Christians where we actually have to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit. A supernatural event has to happen. We don't get the luxury of having the created thing affirm our eternal things. Instead, we get to experience a supernatural power of the eternal God affirming everything else we see. And that's an exciting moment when we see that. And next week, we're going to talk about what that method looks like, specifically step by step. And I'll even have a brand new handout for you to do that so we can get really specific. Does that sound good? All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you, not just for your created world, but for the fact that you have already interpreted for us, that we can look to you to know it and understand it as you would have us understand it. Lord, we pray for clarity and understanding as we talk about these things even next week, as we ponder what we just heard today, that we would look to your word for answers, Lord. And Lord, we uh, pray for our service In just a few minutes, we pray for a special blessing on Andrew as uh, your servant brings us your word to us, that we would hear his words as we listen, that we think of them as words from God for our hearts. Let us come before uh, your word with humble hearts, ready to hear and ready to learn. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.